I was weak. Good morning, church. Are you excited to be gathered together as God's family this morning? Are you stoked to get into His Word? I'm really thankful to be your guest speaker this morning. Well, I'm just going to start out by stating the obvious. Summer is here. And with summer arrives many of our cultural celebrations. Summer vacations, for example. Who's going on summer vacation? Like nine of you. I'm going on summer vacation next week. I'm, I'm excited. So beach days, right? Beach days, walks on the strand. And more generally speaking, in our cultural setting, uh, if, and if you enjoy entertainment, uh, summer blockbusters, right, at the local theater. I have to be honest, though, I've, I've kind of surveyed the box office lineup for the summer and, and haven't really been super stoked or impressed for a few reasons. I think one reason is uh, there just doesn't seem to be that much that's like really worth going and spending $30 on watching in the theaters these days. Um, and kind of as a matter of fact, while I'm on the topic, uh, you know, having surveyed the lineup, I'm going to say that the summer box office seems more like kind of this austere, bleak, crushingly barren desert wasteland than anything remotely intriguing. Um, I have to say also that like after each of the three services, like people were rushing up to me um, to say like, hey, Inside Out is really good. And like I thought they were going to come talk about the message, but they're like defending Inside Out. And I haven't seen it yet, but you know. I think really the issue is that I'm finally legitimately old enough to say that they just don't make them like they used to. Uh, And they don't. But here's the deal. If we kind of look through uh, the summer, uh, there is a distant blip on the radar. There is a far-off beacon of cinematic hope on the horizon. Yes. 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 December 18th. December 18th. So... My fellow nerds in the house feel me on this one. New Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. Sounds very exciting. And I'm going to admit to you that I am a complete and thorough Star Wars geek. Uh, My dad took me to see the movies as a kid. Um, I probably watched them a million times between then and now. Uh, I read all the books when I was like in junior high. Um, Then 10 years ago, of course, the prequels came out, right? And they were really hyped up. And every single time one of the three prequels was released, uh, without fail, my friends and I were there, like, you know, for the midnight showing. We got in, and invariably we came out crushingly disappointed each time. Those of you who are, like, really into Star Wars understand what I'm saying. Uh, But now that I've sufficiently embarrassed myself, uh, I do want to point out that there are quite a few uh, very recognizable lines in Star Wars. Uh, So recognizable, in fact, that they've become kind of universally perceived across cultural boundaries. So I'm going to give you a couple examples here. Our good friend Yoda, he has this great line. It goes something like, Do or do not. There is no try. (laughs) That was very embarrassing. It took a lot of courage. I hope you can appreciate that. And then I'm going to give you another one. There's another very famous line. You know, when Vader says to Luke, No, Luke, I am your father. I don't do a very good Darth Vader. But these two lines kind of lead me to one of my favorite lines in Star Wars. And so this next screenshot um, is in a particular scene where this character, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, and Luke Skywalker are in the Moss Eisley spaceport on the planet of Tatooine. And they're attempting to charter a ship with Han Solo when they're stopped by Imperial stormtroopers who are looking to confiscate their droids, which are, of course, smuggling the plans to the Empire's latest technological terror, the Death Star. And in an attempt to avoid what they say any Imperial entanglements, Obi-Wan uses this deft Jedi mind trick on the stormtroopers so that they can pass without any problems. And these stormtroopers stop Obi-Wan and Luke and... They demand to see their identification, and Obi-Wan kind of looks at them and with a wave of the hand says, you don't need to see his identification. The stormtrooper says, yeah, we don't need to see his identification. And then Obi-Wan's like, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And the stormtrooper's like, these aren't the droids we're looking for. They let them move along. So as I was thinking about this, um, I couldn't help but appreciate that there would be times here at Hope Chapel where this kind of Jedi mind trick would really, really, really be useful. Uh, how many of you have been like hanging out at Hope Chapel long enough to know how children's, tr- children's church recruiting season goes? 
right? And like that providential hand finger of God comes out and people are elected, you know, <laughs> without, without any choice to serve in children's church. It would be very convenient in those moments to just kind of be able to look at, look at the pastor and say, these aren't the children's church workers you're looking for. <laughs> But, but in all seriousness, uh, this is one of the most well-known lines from the Star Wars universe. Um, and in fact, I would say that it's so well-known that it has kind of risen above the films to become what we might call like a kind of modern pop culture colloquialism. So I'm going to give you an example. Uh, well, first I'll give you a definition. So when somebody says to you out on the street, hey, these aren't the droids you're looking for, they could be using that phrase sarcastically to inform you or to inform someone uh, that they're pursuing the wrong course of action or, or thought or that they're barking up the wrong tree. Um, it could also be a response given uh, when someone is obviously confused or completely 180 degrees uh, from accepted reality or, or fact. So I want to give you an example. Let's consider uh, two fictional guys, two fictional characters, Jim and Steve. Uh, Jim might turn to Steve and say, dude, that attractive female walking over here is totally checking me out, man. And Steve would turn to Jim and say, dude, these are not the droids you're looking for. Uh, that's my girlfriend, and she's just walking over here to give me my keys. Okay, so, so my point is that these aren't the droids you're looking for could, could be a response that's given when somebody's, when somebody's obviously confused, when they, when they have reality uh, mixed up. Now, undoubtedly, at this point this morning, you have all noticed the sermon title. And for now, I'm just going to say that we're going to come back to it. And we need to turn our attention to more weighty matters. So I want to invite you to please boot up and scroll your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to read through our passage for this morning. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. A lot going on in this passage. And this passage is intimately connected to the passage that precedes it, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, which was preached to us uh, last weekend. And so I just want to very, very briefly revisit what was going on in that last passage so that we can fully appreciate and understand what's going on in our passage today. So in last week's text, uh, Matthew relates to us that when he finished teaching his 12 disciples uh, about their mission in chapter 10, uh, Jesus departed to go preach and teach in the cities in and around Galilee. And as he's going on his way, he's approached by some of John the Baptist's own followers, some of John's own disciples. And at this point in the narrative, at this point in the gospel account, uh, John the Baptist is in prison and he's uh, essentially waiting to be executed. Uh, he spoke out against Herod because uh, back in the day, Herod married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And so John spoke out against that action and Herodias got upset and got Herod to throw John the Baptist in prison. And so John's in prison at this point, and he's experiencing some doubt. We're going to call it doubt on death row. And so John is sitting on death row, and somehow he sends word to and through his followers uh, to Jesus, and he asks Jesus this question. He asks him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
Now, if we stop and think about that question that John asks Jesus as John is sitting on death row, it's a serious question and it betrays some serious doubt. Uh, John doubts while he's sitting on death row whether Jesus essentially really is who he says he is. Um, And now let's consider just for a moment all that's happened. So back in chapter 3, we see that John is preaching this message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as the gospel unfolds, we see that that's Jesus' central message. So John prepares the way for Jesus by preaching a message of repentance, which Jesus is going to come, and it's going to be at the center of Jesus' message. And then later on in chapter 3, Uh, John says to the crowds, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So John recognizes that this figure coming behind him, the Messiah, is is so great, and John is so unworthy of Messiah, that John's, he's not even worthy to stoop down to the dirty ground and untie his filthy Nikes. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And just a few moments later, in that same account, we see that Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And Matthew tells us, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Surely Jesus was sinless. He was not sinful. He had a sinless nature. He did not need to be baptized with the baptism of repentance because he needed to repent in some sense. Jesus needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness because he needed to identify with man in his sinfulness and because he would later take the full sinfulness of humanity upon himself. So Jesus says to John, it needs to happen. I need to be baptized. But if we just trace the interaction between Jesus and John through Matthew, we recognize that John clearly recognized that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was imminent. It was right around the corner. And it was about to be offered to the Jewish people. And John clearly believed that Messiah was around the corner. One step further, John clearly recognizes Jesus as that Messiah. So now we fast forward eight chapters to the passage last week, and John's experiencing what what we might refer to as a dark night of the soul. Doubt on death row. He needs reassurance. He needs answers. And so we might ask, how does Jesus respond to John? How does he respond to John in his dark night of the soul? Does Jesus turn him away? He doesn't. Does Jesus refuse him? Does Jesus rebuke him? He doesn't. Jesus graciously responds to him. He knows that John's doubts are real, and he knows that John's question is honest. Sometimes people ask questions. Sometimes people approach me and ask me questions about the faith, questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus, but I can kind of tell that the questions that they're asking are really kind of veils that they're hiding behind to disobey God and to hide from God and not to be accountable to God and continue justifying living in their own sin. I've been guilty of this in my past life. But Jesus knows that, that John's doubts in this context are real and that, that his question is honest. His, John's soul is searching for solace and, and he, he is genuinely aching for an answer. And, and when we come to Jesus in our dark night, when we come to him with questions, he doesn't turn us away. And so what's so beautiful about this picture is, is Jesus, John is the last prophet and Jesus answers a prophet in the language of prophecy. And so he meets John right where he is at. He speaks to him in terms that he he could and would understand. And he says to John's disciples, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news. The gospel preached to them. And so Jesus, through John's disciples, sends word back. and, And he encourages John to remember what? He encourages John to remember what's been seen and to remember what's been heard, what's been observable, what's been experienced, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, that he is the promised deliverer. And so John can take comfort in his uncomfortable context. John can find reassurance in the midst of his dark night. And because because our passages this week and last week are so closely connected, I just want to take this brief moment of review to establish the first point in the message this morning. And that is, remember, Jesus is the real deliverer. Jesus is saying to John, John, remember, remember what you've seen. Remember what you've heard. 
Remember what's written. I am the real deliverer. Take hope. And we're, while we're on the topic of dark nights of the soul, Pope Chapel, each of, us, each of us individually goes through these kinds of seasons in life. Each of us experiences in our own way and in our own lives and in our own context John's doubt on death row. How many of us have gone through a difficult time spiritually? How many of us have ever struggled with doubt? How many of us have ever come to a place where our circumstances compelled us to ask, is it all real? About 10 years ago, I entered into this kind of a season in my own life. Uh, my life had been going well. Um, I was raised in the church, and I just kind of expected, hey, you know, if you honor God, He'll honor you. Things will work out. Um, but I entered the season where uh, first I lost the business that I had w worked very hard to establish, build up, and had been initially very successful. And through just these extraordinary circumstances, I lost my business, um, and and then I lost my health. I had a health problem, and um, doctors couldn't figure it out, and I, I spent a small fortune um, visiting all kinds of doctors, and, and they couldn't give me answers, and, and I was constantly in pain. Um, and, and when you're in a situation like that and there are no answers, the physical pain gives rise to emotional distress and pain. About that time, I, I, I was in a relationship, and um, that relationship fell out, didn't work out, and so um, I lost my girlfriend. Uh, I ended up losing my savings, fighting, fighting an unjust lawsuit uh, that lasted about a year and a half and, and battling my health issues. I had a nice car, I had to sell my car. Um, I experienced uh, very deep personal betrayal from two of my closest uh, relationships. My mom got cancer for the first time. Uh, I, I began to wrestle with some very deep depression. Uh, really began to wrestle with my faith. And I'd lay in bed at night and I'd just think, man, this isn't how my life was supposed to turn out. Like, what's up with this, God? This makes no sense. My experience does not jive with what, you know, like I thought I was supposed to experience, you know, as, as a young Christian man. Um, it seemed like no matter where I looked in my life, no matter what category or hope or dream that I thought about, that I was experiencing brokenness or loss um, or failure in that area of my life. Can anybody relate to a season like this? As it turned out, by God's goodness and providence, which I did not necessarily recognize at the time, because though people would say, all things work out, all things work out, I'm like, I don't see how this is going to work out, man. But, you know, thanks for the encouraging word. <laughs> you know, and as a side note, I think just pastorally, there is a sense in which, as, as believers, we are all ministers to one another. You know, the Bible is very clear about the priesthood, the ministry of all believers. And sometimes when people are really hurting, and sometimes when we're really broken, the best thing we could do is just sit with each other. The best thing we could do is just wade through the mire with one another, support each other, love each other, not kind of preach to each other. You know what I'm saying? But... My point is, is that I kind of came up to the precipice of losing my hope. And I just got to this place where I, I said, you know what, God? Um, I've been trying to, like, plan my life. I've been trying to, you know, set things up. And I've, I've honored you. And I don't understand why this is happening. But I've just reached a point where I'm tired of trying to figure it out myself. I'm tired of trying to say, this is my plan. These are the steps I'm going to take. This is where I'm going to be in five years and ten years. I don't know what it is that you want me to do, but whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. I'm tired of trying on my own. I'm tired of trying to figure it out. Just show me. Just show me what you want me to do. And it was once I got to that point of just yielding. You know, I don't think this was a salvation issue, but it was a life submission issue, okay? And so once I got to that point of yielding, I was able to just kind of look to Jesus and say, you know what, I don't see Jesus, how this is all you know, going to work out, but I'm going to choose by faith to trust you. I'm going to choose to trust that you are who you say you are. I'm going to choose to trust that your word is good, and I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other by faith and trust that you're going to lead me. And miraculously, it wasn't long before I was in seminary at a point in life when I thought, if somebody had said, you're going to seminary, I'd be like, you're crazy. You don't even know where I'm at. And then, you know, years later, you know, here I am, like miraculously 
in front of all of you preaching God's very word. And, and all that to say that in this dark night of the soul, I was able to turn to Jesus and he was faithful. He's a good shepherd. He is our good shepherd. The words of Psalm 23 that echo all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament, through the Gospels, all the way up to Peter's letters are true. And we see the same thing in John's life. In this account, we see that John is on death row. He is doubting. He saw Jesus firsthand. He baptized Jesus. He understood, this is the Messiah. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. But all of a sudden, he's questioning everything. And yet, he knows, I'm not going to let my doubt turn me away. I'm not going to let my doubt turn me away from Jesus. I'm going to come back to Jesus. I'm going to ask Jesus, are you the one? Now, John's circumstances didn't necessarily change. He was eventually beheaded. He never got off death row. He never got out of prison. His earthly circumstances remained grim until the end. But I have no doubt, having experienced a dark night myself, that the word of encouragement from the real deliverer, from Jesus himself, lifted John's spirits in prison and gave him reason to look up and to look through his circumstances, to look through his present darkness. And consider how Jesus encouraged John. He pointed him to historical events, right? To what was seen and what was heard. But he also pointed him to the Bible. He pointed him to the words of the prophets. He pointed him to what was revealed. He pointed him to God's word. And the fact is, we are also recipients and beneficiaries of those same events that were seen and heard. And we are beneficiaries and recipients of God's word. The original gospel witnesses recorded all those events, what were seen and what were heard by the, by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we have their testimony today in Scripture, the very Word of God here to, to encourage us and lead us. And this is also where we meet Jesus. So church, as we, as we study His Word, I just want to call us to remember that we must not lose sight of the value and of the importance of God's Word. I don't see how we could live the Christian life if we don't spend time with Jesus here. So Jesus, the good shepherd, led John through his dark night. He will surely lead us through ours as well. So we see that Jesus encourages John, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with encouraging John. So let's look at verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Okay, what's going on here? Who's Jesus talking to? Talking to the crowds, right? And so this tells us something very interesting. Uh, It tells us that when John's disciples came to Jesus to ask that question of Jesus from John, that they did it in a very public setting. Okay, so here's John the Baptist, his disciples, they approach Jesus in front of the crowds, and they express John's doubt. Could that have been potentially publicly discrediting to Jesus and his ministry and his disciples? Like, if somebody serious comes and expresses serious doubt in front of everybody else, like, there's the potential that that could be a little bit, you know, dangerous for for the mission. But just as Jesus doesn't turn John away when he sends his question, Jesus doesn't turn John away publicly in front of all of the crowds. Instead, Jesus publicly exonerates him. Jesus publicly vindicates him. And I just want us to appreciate what's going on here. Throughout Matthew's gospel, how many guys like sports? Guys, you all like sports. Raise your hands. Help me up here. So what happens when we're watching the Super Bowl and the game comes down to a final play and the play is disputed, it's contested? What what happens? What do we go to? Instant replay. Thank you, down front. We go to instant replay. All right? And so what happens when we go to instant replay to review the deciding play of the game? We get the same play from different camera angles, right? Okay, so each camera angle captures the truth of that moment, the truth of that play, but each angle gives you kind of a different perspective, right? So the gospel accounts are kind of like that. Each of the gospel accounts accurately and truthfully captures the life and ministry of Jesus, but each one gives us a different perspective as to what was unfolding. Are you with me? So one of the principal perspectives of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is being revealed as the messianic king of the Jewish people and ultimately of all people. 
And what's going on in this particular passage is so beautiful and fascinating, we have to appreciate it. So throughout Matthew's, Matthew's gospel, Jesus is being presented as the true king. And here we have the one true king, the king of kings, Jesus himself, vindicating his messenger, his herald, his subject, John, who has been imprisoned by the puppet king, Herod, who is not even a real king at all. Herod's nothing more than a client king of the Roman Empire. He's a political and, and local puppet who's corrupt, who's depraved, who's no good, and who really has no essential power and authority beyond what's delegated or given to him by Caesar. And so here we see King Jesus exonerating John in front of the crowds. And his exoneration of John in this passage leads us to our second point this morning, and that is recognize John is the real deal. Jesus is saying to the crowds, you all better recognize this is what's up. John is the real deal. He's legit. He's not a false prophet. He's not a misguided crazy. He may look kind of wily with his camel hair, leather belt, and wild honey out in the wilderness, but his message and his ministry are vindicated by his life. And that is precisely what Jesus is calling the crowds to consider first. Look at his life and character. Second half of verse 7. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And so now Jesus asks the crowds uh, the first of three lines of questioning. Is John like a reed shaken in the wind? Now I have a picture here for you of tall papyrus reeds that, that grow on the banks of the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan. So these are the kinds of reeds that would have, this is the imagery that would have popped into mind when Jesus um, asked this question. These reeds grow uh, between 15 and 20 feet tall. And with just the slightest breeze, with just a gentle breeze, they would flex uh, and bend. And so when Jesus asked them, what did you go out in the wilderness to see, a reed shaken by the wind, um, he's calling to mind a man who would be understood to be fickle or cowardly, easily swayed by public opinion or by the opinions of those who are in power. But Jesus' point Jesus' point is that, that John is not a man like this. John is not like a man who flexes and sways with public opinion. He's not, he's not easily, he's not manipulated at all. John's a prophet. He's not a politician. He's not a moral weakling. He's a man of character and of conviction. He's the real deal. And so then Jesus asks a second question in verse 8. He asks, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. We know that John wore camel's hair and a leather belt. He didn't wear Air Jordans and designer jeans. And like as I was studying this part, I was a little bit convicted because uh, I like Air Jordans and designer jeans. Uh, but the point is that John didn't enjoy a comfortable lifestyle. He didn't adorn himself with expensive or luxurious clothing that in that time especially would have said something about social standing and social status. He wasn't concerned with that kind of stuff. And so also when Jesus refers to, to king's, house, king's houses, he's certainly taking a shot at Herod himself. And so here we have this picture of the king of kings calling out the puppet king and saying that John is greater than the one who has imprisoned him. John's not a smooth criminal. He's a bold prophet. He's the real deal. And as we consider the life of John, as we consider Jesus' exoneration of John, as we consider Jesus appealing to John's life and ministry, to John's character, it would be an appropriate moment for us just to pause and reflect and ask, what kinds of things are our lives characterized by? What kinds of things are our lives characterized by? And I'd like to make an observation. I think that we could also really learn something from John's courage to remain steadfast in, in living and in proclaiming a message um, of, of repentance. Now, the third time's a charm, right? So, Jesus asks the crowd his third of three questions in verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And so here, at the end of this third question, Jesus lays out very explicitly the expected conclusion, the expected answer to his three questions. Uh, John is the real deal. John is a prophet, but but he's also more than a prophet. John is not only a prophet, he's also the fulfillment of a prophecy. Look, he is a prophet and more. 
And so in verse 10, Jesus says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. What's going on here? Well, in verse 10, Jesus is quoting what would have been a very familiar uh, prophecy in Malachi 3.1. Okay, so Jesus is quoting Malachi 3.1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and from the time Malachi prophesied, no other prophets had spoken up in Israel, and 400 years pass until the present. And so the Jewish people, those crowds that were listening to Jesus, would have considered kind of the era of the prophets to have concluded with Malachi. So they're like, okay, he's quoting the last prophet, the last guy. Does that make sense? And in Malachi, uh, Yahweh himself is, is speaking and is saying that, that he will send Elijah to prepare his way. And so the Jewish people understood Malachi to be saying, uh, Yahweh himself is going to be sending the, the prophet, he's going to be sending Elijah to prepare his very way. But here we see Jesus using Malachi 3.1 self-referentially, and this is a very remarkable, very powerful claim to his own deity. So here Jesus is saying, like, I'm not just the Messiah, I, I, I'm God, I'm the God-man, I'm God in the flesh. Now, because of John's unique role, Jesus climactically proclaims to the crowd, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying to them, Look, look, there's no one greater than this guy. What was it that was so great about John? John was the greatest because of the greatness of the one that he introduced. John was the greatest because of the greatness of the one he introduced. John's the greatest. He's the real deal. And yet, after all that, after unfolding this entire exoneration, John, Jesus now throws the crowd a really hard curveball. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so here we see this great reversal. John's the greatest, but all of a sudden he's the least. And so to understand this, we just have to remember that Jesus is speaking before his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's speaking before the inauguration of the new covenant. He's speaking uh, before Pentecost and before the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, as in his life and ministry, is, is in the process leading up to conquering sin and death. And because John is the preliminary figure to introduce Jesus as the Messiah, um, he is the greatest. But compared to those who will experience God's kingdom in its fullness, to experience it when it's established, Jesus is saying, John is the least. And so he holds John up very high to calibrate everyone's perspective about how great those who inherit God's kingdom will be. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Jesus is saying at this point, look at the attack on the kingdom. Look at the attack against the kingdom. And he starts with this phrase, from the days of John the Baptist until now. So since John has began his ministry up until the present, up until this point, which is a relatively short window of time, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And there's a lot of debate about what this particular uh, verse means. Um, I, I happen to believe, after kind of surveying all the options and studying through it, um, that what Jesus is saying here, is, when he says the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, that the, the religious majority, the religious uh, establishment, the religious leaders um, in Judaism from Jerusalem outward, um, their opposition to Jesus is beginning to build. And, and when Jesus says, in the violent take it by force, he's referring to violent men. And I think that this is a veiled reference to Herod himself, who has violently taken John, who will violently remove John's head. And this is a theme that begins to emerge at this point in Matthew's gospel. We've seen Jesus kind of lay down a new Torah for the new covenant in the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen Jesus teach his disciples in the missions discourse. And at this point, though Jesus has been going through 
uh, the, the towns and the villages and performing miracles, authenticating him as the Messiah, authenticating his teaching, teaching with power and authority. At this point, we're going to see this theme of radical opposition to him building, and we're going to see Jesus pronounce judgment over that opposition. And so, this saying kind of foreshadows this gathering opposition to Jesus that is surfacing at this point in his ministry. But Jesus continues, verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus is very explicit. Basically, he's telling the crowds, I told you to look at this, look at his life and character, I told you to look at this, I told you to look at that, now I want you to look at the time. Look at the time. John is the turning point. The prophets and the law prophesied until John. It didn't end with the Old Testament. It didn't end with Malachi. It ends with John. He's the turning point. He's the climactic inflection point in, in history. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is the prophet you, that you were expecting. He is the forerunner. And so Jesus comes right out and is very explicit with the crowds. And then he punctuates this exoneration of John with this statement. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Is it a true statement that everything Jesus says is important? That's a true statement. I think we all agree. But sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus punctuates things that he says with this statement. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And whenever Jesus says that, it's a mark of solemnity. It's a mark of like, you better listen up. Okay, what I'm saying is important. It's beyond important. Don't miss who John is and don't miss who I am. As we study this passage and as we allow God's Word to speak to us through it, it's very tempting to look at Jesus' exoneration of John and to think, oh man, look at John. I need to be more like John. I need to maybe throw out my nice clothes, find some camel hair garb online, preach some repentance and just get radical, right? Maybe that's what I need to do. Well, I do think that there's a sense in which as Christians we could be more committed, more ardent in our witness, more faithful. I don't think that be like John is the main takeaway from our passage here. If we consider our kind of Western American Christian existence, we'd all recognize that we're prone to asking questions like this. When I went through my dark night, I asked questions like this. God, what is your plan for my life? Who's asked that question? I've asked that question. God, what, what, what's your plan for my life? Or maybe if we're going to witness to somebody, share the gospel with somebody, we open up with, hey, you know, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And there's a sense in which there's validity to those statements and those questions. But I think in the example of John and in the instance of Jesus' exoneration of John, we see something more subtle. You see, while we're prone to asking what's God's plan for my life, I think the more appropriate question would be, how does my life fit into God's plan? How does, God's, how does my life fit into God's plan? Just consider the example of John for a second. So John's in prison, right? And he's doubting. And we don't read that John was doubting in prison saying like, God, what's your plan for me? You know, what, what am I to do? No, G John reaches out to Jesus and wants to know, Jesus, are you the one or shall we look for another? In other words, are you the one, that the, the Messiah, the anointed one that we're waiting for? Because I know that God's plan is unfolding and I want to make sure I'm in line with God's plan. I want to make sure that I'm not a false prophet pointing to a false Messiah. I want to make sure that I'm a true prophet pointing to the true Messiah. And so John knew that God has a plan, that God's plan cannot be thwarted, that it will surely be fulfilled, that it will surely progress, that it will surely push forward, and he wants to make sure that his life and ministry factor in, fit in to God's plan. And that can change our perspective quite a bit as Christians. It can certainly change my perspective. I had to come to a place where I was like, okay, God, I'm not going to be worried about what I want, what I want to accomplish, what I want my life to mean. What is your plan, and how can I get on board your train? And it was, it was through that kind of, it was a Copernican revolution of thinking for me. It was through that kind of paradigm shift that I, that I thought, well, okay, I need to like make disciples. I, I need to respond to the Great Commission. 
right? We just fast forward to the end of Matthew's gospel. We know what happens. Jesus dies. He takes our sin upon himself. He's victorious. He's raised. He appears. He commissions, right? He gives us a purpose, our purpose statement, Matthew 28. What does he say? We're on it, Jesus. He says, go make disciples. Make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go into all the world. But the the core action that we're called to, the core action is to make disciples. It is our commission. It's our, our purpose statement in this life. And so we could say, man, God, your program is unfolding. You want the gospel to go out to every tongue, tribe, and nation. You want every unreached people group to be reached. You want disciples to be made here and abroad. And you have saved me and you have purchased me. My life is yours. And so I'm going to factor into your plan. I'm going to fit my life into your plan. I'm going to make disciples. And you know what? I could make disciples while I'm working at Chevron. I could make disciples while I'm working at Raytheon. I could make disciples while I'm preaching at Hope Chapel. But you know what? It doesn't matter as long as I'm making disciples, as long as my life fits into his plan. And so God wants us to respond to the Great Commission. God wants us to love God, to love our neighbor, to be a healthy local church here at Hope Chapel, to be salt and light where God has planted us. How does our life fit into his plan? Now, in your notes, you can see all these look-at moments. And in all these look-at moments, Jesus defends John. He stands up for his brother. But now, at this point in our passage, Jesus is going to shift gears uh, radically, um, and he's going to turn his attention to the crowds, okay? And this is going to lead us to uh, our third point this morning, rejection. The Jews dismiss them both. Rejection, dismissal. Rejection, dismissal. Verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. So Jesus says something very interesting. He says, he asks a question, but to what shall I compare this generation? And when Jesus asks that question, he's using uh, a rabbinic formula. And he's using ancient rabbinic language. And so he's speaking to Jewish crowds, okay, predominantly. And so when they heard that, they would know, it would trigger in their mind, a comparison is coming. So this kind of language is used to proceed or to trigger a comparison by analogy. Now, who's been the subject of Jesus' discourse up to this point? John, right? Okay, well, now Jesus is going to switch to talk about the crowds themselves. He's going to switch to talk about them, this generation. And so Jesus is no longer talking to them about John. He's talking to the crowds about themselves. And so he moves from exonerating John to pronouncing judgment on the crowds and the religious leaders, on on this generation which opposes him. And Jesus compares them to children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. And this is essentially Jesus' way of saying, you all are a bunch of petulant children. So this this is now... It's very encouraging to hear his exoneration of John. It's very encouraging to hear Jesus standing by his own. But it's very sobering to hear him calling judgment upon the masses, upon most people. Broad is the way, right? Narrow is the way to life. Few are those who find it. So this is a very sobering part of our sermon this morning. Verse 17, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What the heck's going on here? Well, it was customary in ancient times, in the ancient world, uh, for children to play games in the marketplace while their parents were occupied buying and selling or maybe just visiting. Um, And there were two major games or fundamental games that were very popular and mimicked, uh, and those were wedding and funeral, okay? And and so they mimicked two major social events. And because weddings at that time, much like our time, uh, involved celebratory music and dancing, the children who participated in this game expected other children to dance as soon as the imaginary flute was played. Now, on the flip side, funeral processions in the ancient world often employed uh, financially compensated paid mourners, right? So 
you were of a higher status in culture the more people who were there to mourn at your funeral. So it was customary for people to buy mourners. Seems kind of strange to us. But the idea was that once the funeral dirge was played, the mourners would wail. Okay? And so when the children played funeral in the marketplace, they would expect the other children to wail, to mourn, as soon as the imaginary dirge was played. Okay, so here's the point. Here's the comparison. John represents funeral mode, and Jesus represents wedding mode. Jesus is the bridegroom, right? He's coming for his bride. He has brought a message of hope for the lost. The, the, the sinner is welcomed into God's house. The repentant sinner is, is welcome, and in, 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 in heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. And, and so that is celebratory. It is, it is positive. It is, up, it is uplifting. And it was, it was scandalous at that time. But John is this guy out in the wilderness, right? He's separated. He's very simple. He's very austere. And, and he's, he's hammering the crowds with this message of repentance. And a message of repentance is a challenging message, right? Like when, when your heart is really convicted by a message of repentance, you, you're driven to your knees, you're, you're humbled, you're, you're cut in the heart, you're brought low. That, that's not joyous, right? And so the point is that this generation is, is, has expected John to mourn when they want him to mourn, and, and they wanted Jesus to dance when they said dance. They wanted what they wanted, when they wanted it, how they wanted it. They set the standards. Their expectations reigned supreme. Their opinions and preferences and presuppositions were the court of highest appeal. Everything on their terms. Does that sound familiar? And so Jesus is, 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 is pronouncing judgment, and, and he sharpens it. He goes one step further in verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon! So we know that John's life, again, was characterized by separation and sacrifice. He lived a simple, God-pleasing life to validate his ministry. Jesus exonerates him. He continuously calls the crowds to repentance. And you can only call people to repentance before, for so long before they get sick of you and before you kind of work their last nerve. And so after the initial excitement of John's ministry wears off with the public, um, they don't respond to him in repentance, but they retort to him. They retort about him. This guy has a demon. He's crazy. We reject him. John came neither eating nor drinking. So he was out in the wilderness. He wasn't with the people, right, in their homes. But then Jesus continues, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is like such a profoundly beautiful image, okay? The Son of Man. Jesus doesn't say, I came eating and drinking. He doesn't say, Messiah came eating and drinking. He says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man is that that apocalyptic judging figure from Daniel chapter 7 who has been given all authority from the ancient of days. And so in the Jewish mind, the son, the son of man was, was to be revered, was to be feared, was a figure of judgment who was going to come and set everything right and bring justice to all the nations. And Jesus here says, the son of man came eating and drinking. The son of man came dwelling with the people in their homes, with them, fellowshipping, eating, drinking, caring for them, meeting them where they're at. That's such a profoundly beautiful, gracious, loving, awesome image. And yet Jesus is saying, but you didn't want it. You don't want it. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so here in this comparison, weddings, funerals, came eating and drinking, did not come eating and drinking. You see two extremes. And Jesus is saying to the people, it does not matter who God sends to you. You don't want to get on his train. It does not matter how God tells the truth to you. You refuse to hear it. You are blind. You do not have eyes to see. You do not have ears to hear. And so Jesus is pronouncing judgment. And so he concludes this pronouncement by saying, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And we can understand this positively and negatively. Negatively, we could say that corrupt human wisdom produces corrupt human deeds. And so there's a sense in which those who build their lives on a false foundation of human wisdom, and they build their worldview on top of it, and their behavior follows from that worldview, 
that worldview will produce corrupt human deeds. Corrupt human wisdom produces corrupt and false accusations against John and then against Jesus in this very instance. You see, though John and Jesus reasoned, pleaded with the crowds, the crowds flipped the script, and and because John and Jesus could not be reasoned down, they were shouted down, and eventually they were beaten down. And so Jesus here demonstrates that that John is vindicated by his life, by his deeds, by God's plan. And Jesus is also vindicated by his life and deeds. And just as Jesus vindicated John, so also the Father vindicated the Son, and so also the Son will surely vindicate his bride, the church, you and me. So to sum this all up, what is going on in the second part of this passage in verses 16 through 19? This is what I think. Jesus is self-referentially saying to the people, these aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Except instead of a deaf Jedi mind trick of misdirection, Jesus is pronouncing judgment. He's rendering the verdict as the true sovereign. And so the main point of this passage is that they missed the kingdom and they missed the king. Busy with their lives, living out their agendas, they missed the kingdom and they missed the king. These aren't the droids you're looking for. No matter who is sent to you, you are unhappy children, you are barking up the wrong tree, you are blind, you are deaf, you are misled, you have missed John and you have missed me. You first rejected the king's messenger and now you are rejecting the king himself. John is the real deal, I am the real deliverer, you all are really mistaken. And this leads us to our fourth point, which anticipates an escalation in this theme of judgment, which will be preached next week. Reward. Judgment is really deserved. So in conclusion, what is, what is our takeaway? What is our take-home truth? Hope Chapel, we must not miss our king. We must not miss our king. We must not impose our program on his program. We must not insist on our agenda instead of his agenda. Jesus stands by those who serve him. He vindicated John, and on that day he will vindicate us as well. And until that day, we must not look to the left or to the right. We must not lose sight of him. We must not look past him. We must not miss him. We must focus our oh-so-fickle hearts on Him day by day and moment by moment. Amen? Let's pray.